This week, we're looking at the anti-nuclear protests which took place at Greenham Common in Berkshire, England, in the early 1980s. Now, that's a huge topic. So this week, we're going to zoom in on one aspect, and that's the issue of whether the protesters were welcome in the area and how locals responded to their presence. Some portrayed it as a hippie free-for-all, some as an example of a society in decay where otherwise decent wives and mothers had run off to the camp, abandoning home and children. Others saw the protesters as unwelcome, dirty, noisy and unsightly invasion of their village. And for others it was a vital and effective protest, catching the attention of media around the world. But first, what happened at Greenham Common? For those who are unfamiliar with it, let's have a very quick summary. My source for this quick recap is the new book by Dominic Sandbrook about Britain in the early 1980s called Who Dares Wins. In the late 1970s, the Soviets deployed a new nuclear missile called the SS-20. This troubled Britain deeply and continental Western Europe because it was an intermediate missile. That meant it didn't really have the range to reach America, know if these bad boys were going to be used, they'd be used against us, not the Americans. As Sandbrook says, in other words, the Kremlin could use the SS-20s to destroy a major European city without necessarily provoking an American response. Of course, we all know that America was bound to jump in and defend us from any Soviet attack. The whole idea of NATO is one of collective defence, where an attack on one is an attack on all. But the niggling worry remained on this side of the Atlantic. Would America actually risk all-out nuclear war with the USSR just because they'd nuked a little patch of Western Europe? So these missiles were deeply troubling, as it seemed to drive a wedge into NATO, making us wonder if we were indeed all in it together. So it was decided that something had to be done in response to these new Soviet missiles. And so, in 1979, NATO delivered a bunch of short-range missiles of their own to Western Europe. A tit-for-tat, you might call it. If the Russians had their intermediate-range SS-20s, which could hit Western Europe, then here comes NATO's Pershing and cruise missiles, which could hit them right back. So with the SS-20s, the Soviets had drawn slightly ahead in the arms race. And here was the West catching up again, keeping things ever so delicately and carefully in balance. So Pershing and cruise missiles were dispersed across Western Europe, although Britain only ever received cruise missiles. Now, arguably it makes sense. If the Soviets do this, then we have to do that. It's all about keeping the arms race even. If you allow one person to pull ahead, then that upsets mutually assured destruction. Mad. Which was the idea, of course, that the Soviets wouldn't hit us because we could hit them right back. They wouldn't start a nuclear war because we could launch the same nuclear war right back at them. Arguably, peace was kept by keeping both sides relatively even. So, bringing out Pershing and Cruz kept us even with the Soviet SS-20s, so the argument goes. And yet, 
Some people in Britain were furious at Margaret Thatcher's acceptance of these American cruise missiles on our soil. CND said it made us a whopping great target for the Soviet Union. Although, surely we were already. They also argued that these missiles were, quote, a visible symbol of subjection. But again, what's new? Britain had hosted US missiles for decades. This wasn't a sudden new development. And Sandbrook argues that all the rage against Thatcher accepting crews was a bit silly. We were already in it up to our necks. And he argues that a Labour Prime Minister would probably have made the same decision. He also swipes aside the notion that hosting these new missiles showed you were subject to the Americans. Quoting his book again, he says, It was not as if the wicked Americans had forced their weapons onto their unwilling colonial subjects. In reality, Mrs Thatcher and Helmut Schmidt had begged for crews in Pershing because, like Clement Attlee and Conrad Adenauer before them, they were worried that a revival of American isolationism might leave Western Europe defenceless. So, arguably, accepting the cruise missiles bound all the NATO partners together and reinforced their collective security. Others furiously disagree, of course, but Sandbrook reminds us there was one very troubling point which the protesters raised and which Thatcher and her supporters couldn't bat away. And that was the massive question of who was in control of these missiles. They were American missiles, but they were on British soil, beside British people, tucked under pretty green British countryside. But who had the final say on whether these hideous things would ever be launched? Well, Britain, surely? Nah. Well, okay, but, well, you need Britain's consent before actually launching them, surely. Nah. Sandbrook says, in theory, the Americans could launch a nuclear strike without even bothering to tell Downing Street. They could just charge right ahead without any British consent, without even asking our permission. Why? This was because Britain didn't own the missiles. She hadn't paid a single penny towards them. And so, she gave up any rights over their control. America had offered her a say, but said she'd have to cough up some money. At least a billion pounds, says Sandbrook. And for whatever reason, Britain or Thatcher were not willing to pay. So, by not putting our hands in our pockets, we gave up control of those nuclear missiles which were on our soil. There was also the question of NATO's perceived unity. No other country who was now hosting these missiles had demanded to have a say in whether they were launched. And so if Britain suddenly asked for one, then wouldn't everyone else who was hosting the missiles? And then wouldn't NATO's united front crack? So, the book argues, for the sake of NATO's unity, and for the sake of saving a billion pounds, Thatcher didn't demand that Britain have to give their consent for a nuclear launch from British soil. And that led to taunts that Britain had become nothing more than America's unsinkable aircraft carrier. An opinion poll from November 1983 showed that 94% of British people thought we must have to give permission before any launch. But... 
Thatcher went ahead regardless. So, as you can understand, the coming of these cruise missiles sparked a huge public outcry and a massive surge in support for CND, who had previously been fading away. Their membership in 1979 had been a tiny 3,000. By 1983, it had skyrocketed to 100,000. Nuclear protest was alive again, as it hadn't been since the Ban the Bomb marches of the 60s. And so, when the Americans arrived at Greenham Common, they were met with a peace camp of women. Hundreds and hundreds of women from all around Britain, which grew and grew and grew, taking in women from around the world who saw the airbase at Greenham Common as the perfect place to protest against the missiles in particular and nuclear weapons in general. The Greenham Common Peace Camp was started by some ladies from Wales who marched from Cardiff to Berkshire intending to hand over a letter of protest to the Americans at the airbase. Having made their protest, they intended to start off home again, but they were insulted and infuriated by the mockery they received from some on the base. So they chained themselves to the fence and decided to stay and they were joined by more and more women. The small number of men who had been involved were soon asked to leave, as the camp defined itself clearly now as a women's camp. But this wasn't just an ideological move, it had a practical cause too. By defining themselves as a women's camp, it was thought there'd be less scope for violence and brutality, both from the protesters themselves and from the police. So it was no blokes allowed, or at least no blokes were allowed to stay there overnight in the camp. So it became strictly a female protest with two main rules, no violence and no men overnight. Some women joined the camp for a few hours, some had a day there, some stayed there for a weekend. Others gave up jobs, left their families and homes to live there for months. Some even stayed there for years. I believe the longest protesters were there for 19 years in total. So what did the locals make of their nice little town, which had suddenly been invaded by Americans and their missiles, and then thousands of protesting women? The protesters were often portrayed as loud, anarchic, disruptive, dirty, or as militant lesbians or runaway wives and mothers who'd abandoned their families and their responsibilities, or they were portrayed as bold and fearless martyrs, warriors for the cause, sacrificing comfort and ordinary life for their protest. It seemed there was no middle ground. They were either dirty hippies or anti-nuclear saints. It was easy to forget there were plenty of ordinary women there who travelled to Greenham for the weekend, or maybe even just for a day, maybe even just for an hour or two, to add their voice for a short while before going back to work, going back to the kids, going back to ordinary life. But of course that's not such an interesting story and it doesn't serve an agenda, so often the camp was portrayed as one of the extremes. Perhaps the camp would have had more success or acceptance from the local community if they had emphasised that a lot of them weren't fierce warriors for the cause, but just ordinary women who were giving up a day or a weekend to protest. But then there's a way to twist every story, isn't there? Perhaps 
if Greenham Common happened today, the woman who stayed for a day or two and then went back home to peace, comfort and safety, perhaps we might today call them virtue signalers. Maybe they'd arrive for the afternoon, a sunny afternoon of course, tweet a selfie from the fence and then get back in their Nissan Duke and head back to their normal middle class life. So let's look at how the locals responded. And before I go on, let me be clear, I'm not taking a side here. I'm just looking at what the archives and newspapers tell us of the local reaction. We'll have time in future for far more episodes about what actually happened in Greenham and who was involved and what they did. For now, it's looking at the colourful response of locals. Let's start with a quote from a book called Bang, A History of Britain in the 1980s by Graeme Stewart. So here is how he describes the locals' reaction to the Greenham woman. Quote, The sacrifice of creature comforts attracted both admiration and repulsion. Abuse from drunken local youths was accompanied by animosity from local residents who resented having their common turned into a squalid shantytown. Besides tents, the woman lived in benders of transparent plastic sheeting propped up by poles and branches. Some local pubs and shops began refusing to serve the woman, who, often having gone for weeks without washing facilities and proper sanitation, were accused of nauseating regular customers. Newbury was treated to protest marches, festooned with banners declaiming, Peace woman, you disgust us! And clean up and get out! And if we look at the Times archive from 1984, February 1984, we hear of a protest letter being delivered to Downing Street, purporting to represent the locals of Newbury who were sick and tired of all these dirty, noisy women and wanted them removed from the town, wanted them evicted from the common. The headline speaks of a plea to end horror and squalor at Greenham. The letter was handed into Downing Street and said, I am writing to you to beg you to bring your influence and position to bear on your Minister of Transport to clear the main gate of the base. The apparent indifference of the government to the plight of those suffering from this intolerable invasion by these women has been endured for the past two years. Newbury, and in particular the residents of Greenham, have suffered long enough. Only those who have to endure this horror and squalor can know what it's really like. The article goes on to say, before handing in the letter, she, that's the leader of the delegation, she claimed that peace women used local gardens as latrines and were verbally and physically abusive. Quote, residents are afraid to take any action against the peace campaigners for fear of retaliation and reprisal. And I found a letter of protest, again addressed to Mrs Thatcher from a local at Greenham. This was in the archives in Manchester. Dear Mrs Thatcher, I am writing to you to see if something can be done about the women's peace camp outside of RAF Greenham Common, Berkshire. It's about time these women were moved on. They are dirty and do not present a good impression to the US personnel stationed at RAF Greenham Common. The letter writer lives at the base with her American husband, although she stresses in the letter, I am a British subject, and she describes one of the protests by the Greenham woman. They attempted to occupy the guard shack at the main gate, but was evicted and the gates locked. When me, my daughter and my friend got to the gate, these women were tying us to the gate with string. 
and wrapped the string all around us. The police just stood and watched this take place, but would not open the gate to let us in. I am really disgusted that the British government and the police stand by and watch. She goes on to say, Whenever the law-abiding British subjects cannot walk the streets of Britain without being harassed by people like these women, then the country has come to a pretty poor state of affairs. And then perhaps she gets to the worst part of her letter. The worst thing these women have done. These women... This is what she writes. These women go around topless. They go around topless at the gate in good weather. And as the enclosed photo will show, they march in parades in Newbury with very little on. Now this is quite an entertaining letter. It's in handwriting, which is obviously always makes it more personal, more angry than a typewritten letter. Written in biro on notepaper, contains spelling mistakes, contains crossed out words. So it seems to be a very hastily written angry letter. I don't know why you wouldn't carefully redraft something you were writing to the Prime Minister. Um, Very angry letter about these dirty, topless women tying them to the fence with string. So, yes, there was lots of upset from locals. Uh, Let me just see, I'm going to upload this letter in its entirety to my private Facebook page, which is called Atomic Hobos. That's available to those who've signed up to my Patreon account. So if you want to see this letter and um, some more of the angry archives that I've uploaded... um, please take a look at patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo. If you sign up at the, I believe it's Zarbomba levels or above, one of your rewards, one of your benefits is access to this private Facebook page. So I'll upload this angry letter. So I am mocking the letter slightly, although there was anger from locals. But were they all opposed? Were, was, there, was there constant rage against dirty, to- uh, topless women tying them to the fence with string? Surely that can't have gone on all the time. Let's again turn to the Times for a more measured and hopefully sensible reaction. May 1983, a journalist goes to the camp and asks them, you know, what's the response from the locals? The journalist sees a group of students who've turned up from Denmark to visit the camp. It's much more primitive than we imagined, one Danish girl said, slightly aghast at the scattered rubbish, the chemical lavatories hidden in the bushes, the washing hanging on trees, and the bales of straw for seating. But despite the the mess here, the journalist says they suffer little direct abuse, even when they go shopping in Newbury. The article goes on, but people do give you the look and will walk to the other side of the pavement, Sarah said. In the shops, they will put the change down on the counter rather than put it in your hand. And there are only two pubs in Newbury that will let us in. That is not strictly correct, says the article. We took Trisha in her muddy Wellingtons and hitchhiker's bedroll into the Swan Inn, an oak-beamed hostelry of well-dressed clientele, where an eyelid or two was batted, but where she was served without demur. But Newbury would, on the whole, rather they folded their tents and slipped away. The postman still delivers them letters of support from all over the world, which they keep in an old refrigerator by the campfire. But the district council long ago stopped collecting their rubbish, and any visitor is liable to be asked to take a sack of garbage to the public tip. Of course, as the months went by, evictions proceeded. 1984 in the Times tells us that most of the camps are evicted twice a week, 
and the women are now adept at swiftly gathering up their belongings to avoid them disappearing into the muncher, the refuse lorry used by Newbury District Council. The evictions undoubtedly sat morale, making the women feel insecure. At some gates, they have abandoned the use of tents and benders, their homemade plastic shelters, and instead sleep in survival bags. Belongings can be gathered up faster that way. Let's give the last sentence of this article to Pip, who lived at the Red Gate in the camp. The peace movement is growing, says Pip. Until we have been blown up, it's not too late to protest. Remember, if you want to read the angry handwritten letter about being tied to the Greenham fence by dirty, topless protesters, please consider joining my Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo where I'll upload the letter and some other nuclear material that we've mentioned in this episode. I've had a big flurry of people joining my Patreon this week and I am just delighted. Honestly, the cash people donate helps me run this podcast, which I do completely single-handedly. I have no producers or studio space. That's why you'll sometimes hear Bomba snoring on the floor. This is done in my spare bedroom. The money from Patreon also contributes to research costs for the podcast. And to let you know something I did this week with some Patreon money, there's a particular archive I've wanted to visit for months now, but it's down in Norfolk, which is about 400 miles away. So it'll take a couple of days, plus the cost of travel, the cost of hotel, cost of food, etc. So that's quite a lot of money, and of course it's a lot of time out of my diary. Remember, I'm on a deadline here. My nuclear book is due in spring. So, I used some Patreon money to buy photographs of the documents. I found out for about a tenth of the cost of the trip, an archivist in Norfolk will simply photograph the files and email them to me. She won't go through every single scrap of paper to get the precise document I want. Instead, which is even better, she'll photograph everything in the box and email it to me. So I get masses of new nuclear archive material, plus a specific document I'm dying to get my hands on, and I don't need to leave the house, all for about £120. So that's a direct thank you to my patrons who contribute funding towards my podcasts and its research. So please consider signing up if you like The Atomic Hobo. You can give as little as a pound a month. So that's patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. So we're finished for today. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode, which has been slightly different from my usual topic, in that we looked at protest. Obviously, the topic of the atomic hobo is how we prepared for nuclear war. And protesting against the bomb isn't strictly preparing for it. But arguably, in a roundabout way, it is. Because these women, of course, were alerting to us to what they saw as the dangers and the horrors of the bomb. And so, in that way, they were preparing for it. But as ever, let me know if you have any feedback. You can get me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, on Facebook under Nuclear Britain, or through my website, juliemcdowell.com. Thank you again for listening, and let me just give a shout out to the following patrons as we play out to Music by X. They provide the music for the podcast, and you can find them on Twitter at XBandUK. And now let me say thank you to Simon Robinson, Lizzie D. Eric, Hallie Andrews, Chris Carini, Louis, Sally Everett Brick, Tom Allen, 
Paul Jonathan Viner, Everybody, Hack Green, Secret Nuclear Bunker, Dan Breen, Gary Watson, Arika, Lucy Stegervald, Ben Taylor, Jonathan Abelins, Messi Ventura, Heather Parker, Peter Mars, Craig Bushman, John Haynes, Tom Stickland, Yannick, Sam Marco, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damien Ryan, Peter Lee, Andre Russell, Julie Rose, Jonathan Fozard, Emma Nystrom, Ben Grabham, Ed Freshwater, Rose Jameson, Andrew Key, Ian Elkin, Lorraine Gluick, Eamon Coyle, Sarah Brassington, Nick Packham, Tara Moore, Simon Reid, Lynette Walsh, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Wilnuff, Kevin Booter, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Claire Brennan and Gordon McNair. Thank you everyone and I'll be back next week with another episode.